to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hello, everyone. Oh, hi. Um, I, I said this morning, and I, I really did want to say it again tonight, that it is such a massive privilege to be part of this community and to be able to be part of facilitating worship in in a bunch of people who are so passionate about it. Um, I, I, I've said to the team a number of times, but I, I never forget the first time I um, joined the team and, and got up to, to play and just saw the, this, this incredible response of people. And it, there was never a sense of needing to stir up or whip up any sort of responses. There's such a willingness to engage in worship. And we're so privileged with such a fine bunch of musicians. Thanks for leading us tonight, Den and, and team. And um, it really is our privilege to be part of this community and, and to help, um, help out where we can. Um, so it is my turn to kick things off this year. Um, I spoke this morning and, and I'm trying to figure out if I tried different punchlines with jokes or the same jokes with different punchlines or how, how it sort of works. But we'll, we'll just take it from the top and we'll see how we go, all right? Um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity today to share some of the thoughts from the Psalms that I've gleaned uh, over the last little while. Uh, these thoughts were collected partly on a campsite at Ohope Beach, um, where I had to constantly reassure my fellow campers that I was actually preparing a message and not on Netflix, and partly prepared at home with numerous breaks to make sure that my kids weren't um, getting into mischief in the garage where I'd set them up with the hammer and nails and some wood um, and just let them go for gold. Um, thankfully, all their limbs are still intact, and um, they're still still here and with us, so that's good. Um, the 150 Psalms are, are divided into five books, um, and many scholars believe that they are designed to reflect the, f- the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, the, the five books of the written Torah. Um, book two is, is a group of 30 psalms from 42 to 72, and they're known as the Exodus Psalms. Um, these psalms tackle the major themes of suffering, redemption, and deliverance. The psalm I'd like to explore to you today is the first um, psalm in that second book, and it's Psalm 42. Um, I've chosen the Passion Translation for the majority of the text we'll explore today, um, mainly because it's the translation that I've had on hand for most of last year, and it's the one that um, I had at my disposal, and I've enjoyed reading this the familiar text through fresh lenses, as it were. Um, there's some debate as to whether Psalm 42 was composed by or for the sons of Korah, as, or if David penned the words, and the sons of Korah then put the text to music. Um, the great British theologian Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, suggests that David was the, actually the author Um, And he says that although David is not mentioned as the author, this psalm must be the offspring of his pen. It's so Davidic. It smells of the son of Jesse. It bears the mark of his style and experience in every letter. We could sooner doubt the authorship of the second part of Pilgrim's Progress than question David's title to be the composer of this psalm. 
I'll draw fairly heavily from Spur Spurgeon's commentary on this psalm today so that you do a lot of reading. Um, it seems also, though, that as I've leaned on Spurgeon, I have also unwittingly um, borrowed a lot of quotes from some of his contemporaries from the 19th century. So there'll be a fair bit of King James English in there today. Um, I hope you can bear with it. I won't try and correct it. I may throw the odd British accent in there, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> Uh, the inspiration for this psalm was, was probably David's exile during his son Absalom's rebellion, but some scholars also suggest that it may have been inspired by his exile when he was fleeing from the wrath of Saul. Psalm 42 is also, in fact, joined with Psalm 43 in many ancient Hebrew manuscripts, and the absence of a title in Psalm 43, as well as the repeated refrain that's common to the two psalms, do support this idea. Um, but tonight we'll just look at Psalm 42. So let's jump into it. We'll read the entire chapter and then we'll break it down. So, cry for revival. I long to drink of you, O God, drinking deeply from the streams of pleasure flowing from your presence. My longings overwhelm me for more of you. My soul thirsts, pants, and longs for the living God. I want to come and see the face of God. Day and night, my tears keep falling and my heart keeps crying for your help, while my enemies mock me over and over, saying, where is this God of yours? Why doesn't he help you? So I speak over my heartbroken soul, take courage. Remember when you used to be right out front leading the procession of praise when the great crowd of worshipers gathered to go into the presence of the Lord? You shouted with joy as the sound of passionate celebration filled the air and the joyous multitude of lovers honored the festival of the Lord. So then, my soul, why would you be depressed? Why would you sink into despair? Keep hoping and waiting on God, your Savior, for no matter what, I will still sing with praise, for living before His face is my saving grace. Here I am, depressed and downcast, Yet I will still remember you as I ponder the place where your glory streams down from the mighty mountaintops, lofty and majestic, the mountains of your awesome presence. My deep needs call out to the deep kindness of your love. Your waterfall of weeping sent waves of sorrow over my soul, carrying me away, cascading over me like a thundering cataract. Yet all day long, God's promises of love pour over me. Through the night I sing his songs, for my prayer to God has become my life. I will say to my God, you are my mountain of strength. How could you forget me? Why must I suffer this vile oppression of my enemies, these heartless tormentors who are out to kill me? Their wounding words pierce my heart over and over while they say, where is this God of yours? So I say to my soul, don't be discouraged, don't be disturbed for I know my God will break through for me. Then I'll have plenty of reasons to praise him all over again. Yes, living before his face is my saving grace. What I'd like to do for the remainder of our time together is, is actually go through methodically those verses again, one by one, unpacking some of Spurgeon's and his contemporaries, um, some of their commentaries on these different verses. And I'll add a couple of key thoughts that have stuck with me and bring it all into some form of conclusion at the end. So let's start in verse one again. I long to drink of you, O God, 
drinking deeply from the streams of pleasure flowing from your presence. My longings overwhelm me for more of you. The King James Version draws a parallel of a thirsty heart, which is another word for a male deer, panting for brooks of water. And some of the older people in our congregation will remember the old chorus, as the deer pants for the water. Um, there's a parallel that's drawn there between the heart of humanity and the male deer longing for the presence of God. David's pining for the presence of God is echoed in another well-known verse in Psalm 84 where the psalmist cries, one day of intimacy with you is like a thousand of joy rolled into one. I'd rather stand at the threshold in front of the gate beautiful, ready to go in and worship my God than to live my life without you in the most beautiful palace of the wicked. David's not longing for a sip here. He's not craving a fleeting moment in the presence of God. He's crying out for a long, deep draft and an extended time, a tarrying with his maker. Spurgeon describes the context as debarred from public worship, David was heartsick. Ease he did not seek, honor he did not covet. But the enjoyment of communion with God was an urgent need of his soul. He viewed it not merely as the sweetest of all luxuries, but as an absolute necessity, like water to a stag. Like the parched traveler in the wilderness whose skin bottle is empty and who finds the wells dry, he must drink or die. He must have his God or faint. His soul, his very self, his deepest life, his insatiable for a sense of the divine presence. Deny him his Lord and his heart heaves. His bosom palpitates, his whole frame is convulsed like one who gasps for breath or pants with long running. David wasn't murmuring about being driven away from his throne room or pining for the comforts, comforts of the palace. He wasn't grumbling about being on the run in the country he was meant to be ruling. He was craving after God in his presence. Verse 2 says, my soul thirsts, pants, and longs for the living God. I want to come and see the face of God. Spurgeon notes that thirsting is more desperate than hunger. A human can survive for almost three weeks without food, but little more than a week without water. Hunger may be more uncomfortable than thirst, but thirst is far more insatiable and far more clamorous. Verse 3 says, day and night my tears keep falling and my heart keeps crying for your help while my enemies mock me over and over saying, where is this God of yours? Why doesn't he help you? So extreme was the psalmist's grief that he couldn't eat. The German theologian Johann Lange speaks of the homesickness of the soul and what awakens it to what it is directed and what it can be satisfied with. His suggestion is, is that the answer is in the bitter but often wholesome food of tears. The Welsh-born minister and author Matthew Henry notes, Sometimes God teaches us effectually to know the worth of mercies by the want of them and whets our appetite for the means of grace by cutting us short in those means. We are apt to loathe that manna when we have plenty of it which will be very precious to us if ever we come to know the scarcity of it. In the second half of this verse, we come across the first taunt of the psalmist by his enemies. And this is a theme that is dotted on the landscape of all the other psalms as well. 
One, uh, one possible interpretation of, of these accusing enemies or these, these um, taunting enemies is, is, the, is a literal translation to us of the devil. Um, Anglican theologian um, Richard Sibb suggests that the devil knows well enough that as long as God and the soul join together, it's in vain to trouble any man. Therefore, he labors to put jealousies, to accuse God to man and man to God. Since he was divided from God himself eternally, he's become a spirit of division. He labors to sever Christians from their head, Christ. In verse 4, we read, So I speak over my heartbroken soul. Take courage. Remember when you used to be right out front leading the procession of praise when the great crowd of worshipers gathered to go into the presence of the Lord? You shouted with joy as the sound of passionate celebration filled the air and the joyous multitude of lovers honored the festival of the Lord. Now this verse might not be all that it is at first glance. At first glance, it, it sort of starts with a note of resolve. Take courage. But then David does himself a, quite a disservice by remembering his joy in the past tense. David fares much better later in the psalm when he devotes his remembering energy towards the constantness of Almighty God rather than to his finite and fickle joy. The English minister Timothy Rogers, who was known as the author on depression, notes, uh, to a person in misery, it's a great increase of misery to have once been happy. It was to David an occasion of new tears when he remembered his former joys. I sometimes find myself um, pining for days gone by when I look at my kids now and I, I remember three, sort of four years ago when they were cute little toddlers, um, and then, then I was pining back for when they were, you know, a couple weeks old, three weeks old, and, and I, I f sometimes catch myself needing to actually really relish the moment and be grateful for the moment that I'm celebrating with the kids right now. Um, time is so precious with them, and, and I feel like sometimes I fall into this trap of, you know, longing for past joys as opposed to really savoring present ones. Uh, verse 5. Verse 5 is the first real high point in this undulating landscape of Psalm 42. And it's a significant passage that bears um, a little bit longer discussion. Uh, it is the passage that's then repeated as somewhat of a benediction at the end of the psalm. And it, it, nowhere in the other um, 149 psalms do we see a psalm or a verse or a, a passage of this length repeated three times. So it's got some weightiness to it. My soul, why would you be depressed? Why would you sink into despair? Just keep hoping and waiting on God, your Savior. For no matter what, I will still sing with praise. For living before His face is my saving grace. And this is the key verse of this psalm. David was the master of soliloquy, regularly taking up discourse with his own self. It's kind of funny when you think about it. But in actual fact, I think if we were all honest enough about it, we are constantly engaged in conversation in our own heads as well, with ourselves. And unfortunately, we often passively let our meandering thoughts weave ruts into our subconscious that eventually become what we take to be truth. I think there's a great lesson we can learn from the psalmist here of scattering these pesky thoughts with a verbal rebuttal before they become ruts. David's faith is here reasoning with his fears. His hope 
is wrestling with sorrow. The Welsh minister Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on spiritual depression, takes hold of this verse, noting, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You haven't originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you downcast, my soul? His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen, listen for a moment. I got something to say to you. And I said this morning, um, I said, when I read this psalm the first time, I, it, I read it quite differently. I read it almost as a, like a, a moaning, as sort of like, self, why are you so downcast? Why are you down in the dumps? As, as I've read these commentaries and really delved into this psalm a lot deeper, it, it feels like it's coming out a lot more of a, a holding to account. It's like grabbing self by the scruff of the neck and saying, why are you downcast? Give me an answer for where you're feeling. <laughs> David is effectively chiding himself. He's chiding himself out of the dumps. By questioning himself, he's forcing the hand of his darker thoughts. I wonder if sometimes the best surgery for our despondency is to attempt an articulation for the reason of it. Spurgeon suggests that often the mist of ignorance magnifies the causes of our alarms, making mountains out of molehills and monsters out of minions. Matthew Henry also notes that our disquietudes would in many cases vanish before a strict scrutiny into the grounds and reasons for them. Why am I cast down? Is there a cause, a real cause? Have not others more cause that do not make such ado? Have not we at the same time cause to be encouraged? Why do I thus dishonor God by melancholy dejections? Why do I discourage others and do so much injury to myself? Can I give a good account of this tumult? Luther is famous for quipping that you can't prevent birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. I wonder if too often we let the voice of doubt and the sentiment of despair have free reign or infiltrate the far reaches of our minds unchecked nesting at will and wreaking havoc without restraint. I'm reminded of a poignant scene in the second of the Lord of the Rings trilogy of films where Smeagol is being tormented by his worse half, Gollum, about whether or not they should stay loyal to the Hobbit pair. With growing confidence, Smeagol concludes the argument with the repetition of the words, and he starts off in quite a sort of tentative undertone. He's sort of like, leave now and never come back and then he sort of gradually gains momentum and confidence and he repeats it three or four times till he's like leave now and never come back <laughs> and he's pretty much just like dancing and shouting and then the next moment Gollum's vanished um, it, it really is a poignant scene in the movie I, I contemplated whether or not I'd flick it up tonight but my kids are here tonight and I thought they might get a little bit freaked out by it <laughs> so you can watch it later if you it is on YouTube um, speaking of trilogies, uh, my parents have a trio of paintings by a Kiwi painter called Graham Braddock, 
um, that I love based on Psalm 42, and um, we've got them up here. The first is called uh, Despair, and it says, why are you downcast? And it's based on this psalm, and just note the, the dark hues and how they transition through the trilogy, the trio of paintings here. The second one is Prayer, Hope in God. And then the third is praise, I will praise him. And it's just such a beautiful, beautiful articulation, I think, of what is going on in this psalm here. The transition from darkness to light, it's very poignant, and it's a beautiful picture. Also, in Psalm 30, it's, it's articulated as, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. In the middle of this verse, David shifts from interrogating his soul to exhorting his soul. And I, we sung about this this night at the end there in, in, in the song, um, You and You Alone. Wake my soul, I do believe. Faith my able guide to be. Hope be made alive in me. Christ be my awakening. It was a really effective way, a really fitting way to finish that worship set. Um, the word hope... I feel sometimes loses its potency in its ubiquitousness. It's essentially an expectancy founded on faith in God that the English author and clergyman Gurnall describes so articulately. He says, hope has a rare art instilling a froward spirit when nothing else can, as the mother can make the crying child quiet by laying it to the breast. This way David took and found it effectual when his soul was unquiet by reason of his present affliction he lays it to the breast of the promise. This hope fills the afflicted soul with such inward joy and consolation that it can laugh while tears are in the eye, sigh and sing all in one breath. He goes on to say that there are two graces which Christ uses above all others to fill the soul with joy, faith and hope, because these two fetch all their wine of joy without door. Faith tells the soul what Christ has done for it and so comforts it. Hope revives the soul with the news of what Christ will do. Both draw from one tap, Christ and his promise. Spurgeon says that hope knows her title good when she cannot read it clear. She expects the promised favor though present providence stands before her with empty hands. Matthew Henry suggests that the soul that embraces itself will sink in the tempest, but the soul that clings to the power and the promise of God will keep its head above water. The Scottish author Samuel Smiles says that hope is like the sun, that as we journey towards it, cast the shadow of our burden behind us. In the second half of the verse, we read the words, no matter what I will sing. No matter what. David had resolved in his heart that come what may, he would praise. He had resolved that his current plight would not set the bar for the quality of his worship. This morning we sung a song and we've been singing it a couple of times now that's well known across the world. It's raise a hallelujah and it's saying I'll raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies louder than my unbelief. I'll sing in the middle of the storm louder and louder. You're going to hear my praises roar. Um, come what may, no matter what, I will raise my hallelujah. In verse 6, 
we read, Here I am depressed and downcast. Yet I will still remember you as I ponder the place where your glory streams down from the mighty mountaintops, lofty and majestic, the mountains of your awesome presence. I said this morning that I, I felt I really needed to throw a disclaimer in here because I, when we're talking about things like the blues and depression and melancholy states, you know, I, I feel like it's easy for me to sound quite trite and like it's a, it may come across as a slap in the face for some people who are clinically diagnosed with depression and a serious case of it. I, I'm, not, I'm no expert in this matter and I'm not trying to talk about clinical depression. I'm really talking about the way more um, commonly spread among us down in the dumps, everyday sort of blues, if that makes sense. Um, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, it's kind of a weird time to sort of talk about this at the start of the year when everybody's on such a high coming, up, coming back from holiday and having been at the beach for the last four weeks and stuff like that. Um, but if you're anything like me, um, I, I find that when everything stops and all the noise and the chaos of the year subsides, that you actually are left with your own thoughts going around your head a whole lot more than, than the year. And I, I did laugh a little bit this year because I asked for a show of hands and not many went up, so maybe it is just me that's like that. Um, but I did just want to say that there's a slight disclaimer there. I am talking about the blues. I'm talking about a melancholy that I am sure all of us succumb to from time to time. Many think of the blues as originating in the deep south of the United States, but those of us in the know know that King David was the originator of the blues. He is the true king of the blues. Spurgeon suggests this as well, that we imitate David as the master of the blues, telling the Lord how we feel. He suggests also that the more plain our confession, the better, as if we were a sick child moaning to its mother. So we go from the first real vista straight back into the valley of despair. But just as quickly, the next vantage point is reached, heralded by the word, yet. Yet, I will still remember. This time, David isn't remembering a past joy. He's now remembering well. He's remembering the unchanging and immovable one. The Scottish minister, William Nicholl, notes that streaks of brightness are now flashing through the gloom. Sorrow is shot with trust. This conflict of opposite emotions is the characteristic of the second part of the psalm, while that of the first part is an all but unrelieved predominance of gloom, and that of the third an all but undisputed victory of sunshine. Naturally, this transition strophe is marked by the mingling of both. In the former part, memory was the handmaid of sorrow and came involuntarily and increased the singer's pain. But in this part, he makes an effort of will to remember. And in remembrance, he finds an antidote to sorrow. Nicol goes on to say, To recall past joys adds stings to present grief, but to remember God brings an anodyne, a medicine for the smart. It is the prerogative of faith to make pictures drawn by memory pale beside those painted by hope. Remember, remember, remember. How quickly we forget. We forget the miracle, the breakthrough, the deliverance, the salvation, the worst plight of our neighbor. Remember, remember well. Remember that he is God, that he reigns. Remember that he has revealed himself to us, that we have trusted in him and never once been disappointed. The children of Israel had their victories. 
how quickly they forgot them. They had their Red Sea, they had their Jericho victory, they had their Jordan crossing, and on and on it went. And they would remember for years, and then they would forget. And they would remember, and they would forget. What are your tangible landmarks on the landscape of your life that you can look back to and say, that was when God delivered me, that was my deliverance, that was my miracle? How will you recall those when you need them the most? Remember, remember to focus on the God of our mercies and we will be more likely to forget the sting of our miseries. Verse seven says, my deep need calls out to the deep kindness of your love. Your waterfall of weeping sent waves of sorrow over my soul, carrying me away, cascading over me like a thundering cataract. There's a little bit of obscurity involved with this verse, a little bit harder to wrap your head around, myself included, and not all the commentaries were all lining up necessarily, but I'll throw out what I did find for what it's worth. Henry suggests that one, this is a description of one frightful thought summoning another, making way for the next, as is usual in melancholy people. He was overwhelmed and overpowered with a deluge of grief. Spurgeon suggests that his woes are incessant and overwhelming, billow following billow, one sea echoing the roar of another, bodily pain arousing mental fear, satanic suggestions chiming in with mistrustful forebodings, outward tribulation thundering in awful harmony with inward anguish. One interesting side fact of this particular verse is it is that Jonah quotes it word for word in, in the belly of the whale about 250 years later. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress says, what's going on here? Well, it's expressed in the verse before. Oh God, he says, my soul is cast down within me. Down, that is deep into the jaws of distrust and fear. And Lord, my soul in this depth of sorrow calls for help to thy depth of mercy. For though I'm sinking and going down, yet not so low, but that thy mercy is yet underneath me. Do of thy compassions open those everlasting arms and catch him that has no help or stay in himself. For so it is with one that is falling into a well or a dungeon. One commentary I read drew a beautiful parallel between nature and the instances where it calls from deep to deep such as migrating birds answering this inexplicable call to return south, the moon pulling the waters into tidal changes, salmon retracing their journey upstream, and on and on it goes. Maybe this is what Bunyan was hinting at when he spoke of the depths of his sorrow being drawn to the depths of God's mercy. Verse 8 says that all day long God's promises of love pour over me. Though that through the night I will sing his songs, for my prayer to God has become my life. Singing through the night, like Paul and Silas in prison, like the countless martyrs who sang their way into glory, this is again a beautiful anthem of resolve to return the faithful promises of God with an unwavering hallelujah. Spurgeon comments here that no day will ever dawn on an air of grace and find him altogether forsaken of his Lord. The Lord reigns, and as a sovereign, he will with authority command mercy to be reserved for his chosen. Affliction may put out our candle, but if it cannot silence our song, we will soon light the candle again. 
Spurgeon carries on to say that we can be assured that both our sighs and our songs have free access in the throne room of heaven. And that alone is reason enough to hope in the most hopeless of circumstances. The NASB, the New American Standard, says, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. Command, not simply give His love. He will command it. This is by sovereign decree, a royal order that is impossible to be intercepted. The Word is so full of promises that continue the imagery of day and night, of which English scholar Zachary Bogan, almost tongue-in-cheek, quips, it is all one to a godly man, night and day. For what night can there be to him who has God always with him, who is a sun to comfort him, as well as a shield to protect him? He can say, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me, and the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Henry notes that David, lead worshiper that he was, before the day dawned in which God commanded his loving kindness, was there with his harp singing his songs of praise in the prospect of it, in faith of it. Verse 9 says, I will say to God, you are my mountain of strength. How could you forget me? Why must I suffer this vile oppression of my enemies, these heartless tormentors who are out to kill me? The land David was a fugitive in was mountainous, and there was more than one occasion in which he found refuge in a mountain cave or on the top of a precipitous rock. The idea of God being his shelter and defense being likened to a rock is therefore not really a surprise here. In verse 9, we also hear the final why of the chapter. It's okay to ask why. Are we afraid to ask why? Do we think them irreverent or presumptuous, perhaps? If David was a man after God's own heart, can we assume that God was okay with David's whys? Spurgeon comments at length on this verse and says that faith is allowed to inquire of her God the causes of his displeasure. She's even permitted to expostulate with him and put him in mind of his promises. Expostulate, that's a great word. If my kids ever learn that, it's going to be all over, isn't it? Papa, I'm expostulating with you. <laughs> okay, ask why apparently they are not fulfilled. If the Lord be indeed our refuge, when we find no refuge, it is time to be raising the question, why? Why is this? Yet we must not let go of our hold. The Lord must be my rock still. We must keep to Him as our alone confidence and never forego our interest in Him. He who condescends to be pleaded with by Abraham, his friend, allows us to put to Him the question that we may search out the causes of His severity toward us. Such inquiries, humbly pressed, often afford relief to the soul. The picture of David, uh, sorry, not David, Jacob wrestling with the angel comes to mind as well. This, the idea of wrestling is, is there's, there's not letting go. You're actually grappling with something. You're not walking away from it. You're staying engaged and you're like, why? You're aggressively wrestling with it, grappling with it. Perhaps the hardest thing is that more often than not, though, we only see the hand of God in hindsight rather than in the middle of the trial. 
I suppose that is where the elements of faith and hope come into play and remembering well. Just a couple more verses now. Their wounding words pierce my heart over and over while they say, where is this God of yours? A second time, we hear the enemies of God tormenting him with the seeds of doubt. Where is God in all of this? Though sometimes sorrow may dim our sight, he is there. As in the story of Hagar or the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he is there with us, never more so often than in our greatest afflictions. Even though we more often know this in the moment of struggle only by faith and not by feeling. The English preacher Thomas Brooks comments that the saints may return a bold and confident answer to this question. Our God is here. Our God is nigh. Our God is round about us. Our God is in the midst of us. Our God has given us his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. In every trouble, in every danger, in every death, the Lord will be sure to keep us company. God will bear his children company not only while they are in a delightful paradise, but also when they are in a howling wilderness. And the final verse of the psalm. It's a near exact repeat of the refrain that we read in verse 5, and it's repeated again at the conclusion of Psalm 43. I say to my soul, don't be discouraged. Don't be disturbed. I know my God will break through for me. Then I'll have plenty of reasons to praise Him all over again. Yes, Living before his face is my saving grace. I know. I know. This is a new word slotted in at the conclusion of the psalm. I know is stronger than I feel or I think. I feel changes all the time. I think is a constant argument, but I know is different. David is reminding his soul of the facts. He's refusing to yield to a vague grief. He's summoning his soul and demanding it to give concrete answers. It's not too dissimilar to Jesus' rebuttal of the devil at the temptation in the wilderness when he said, it is written, I know. Spurgeon concludes his commentary of Psalm 42 with the observation that in the rehearsal of his sorrow, David finds after all no sufficient ground for being disquieted. Looked in the face, his fears are not so overwhelming as they seemed when shrouded in obscurity. Henry concludes his commentary with the observation that the psalmist's closing words are repeating what he had said before. He's chiding himself as before for his dejections and disquietudes and encouraging himself to trust in the name of the Lord and to stay himself upon his God. It may be of great use to us to think our good thoughts over again. And if we do not gain our point with them at first, we might the second time. However, where the heart goes along with the words, it's not vain repetition. We have need to press the same thing over and over again upon our hearts, just like Smeagol does to Gollum. He says it with growing confidence. He says it four or five times from the timidest little whisper at the start to the boldest dancingest shout at the end. That repetition is so significant for us to pick up. Henry further notes that the significance of the addition of the words, the help of my countenance and my God in the NASB is related to me 
Almighty God is in covenant with me. All that he is, all that he has is mine, according to the true intent and meaning of the promise. This thought enabled David to triumph over all his griefs and fears. I'd like to invite Dan and the rest of the musicians up as I conclude briefly. In summary, we can say that having the blues is inevitable. We don't, however, need to succumb to them. Five key points emerged from our exploration of Psalm 42 today. Firstly, with a verbal rebuttal, we need to talk to ourselves more often than we listen to ourselves. Talk more, listen less. <laughs> no matter what, no matter what, sing your hallelujah. This is the second thing to remember. Let the passion of your praise set the tone of your mood, not your circumstances. And thirdly, remember well. Remember well, not just past joyful experiences, but historical victories and miracles. Feelings are fleeting. Number four, don't be afraid to ask why. Ask the whys. And finally, recall your I knows. What are your I knows? Immerse yourself in the truth of God's promises that are contained in his word. I'd like to finish with a wonderful quote that Spurgeon references by the author Henry Salter, and it says, Have you seen the sun shine forth towards the end of winter, and the sky blue, and the hedgerows bursting into bud, and the primrose peeping beneath the bank, and the birds singing in the bushes? You've thought that spring was already come in its beauty and its sweet odors, but a few days... And the clouds returned, the atmosphere is chilled, and the birds are mute. Snow is on the ground, and you say that spring will never come. But the spring, though late, will break at last. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.